Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. The book of Hebrews is a book that helps us to be just in awe of the magnificence and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a book that, by way of comparison, says that Jesus is better or Jesus is superior. That he's the superior revelation, that he is superior to the angels, that he's superior to Moses, and he's superior to Aaron and his priesthood and all the Levitical uh, sacrificial system. He's, he's superior to Joshua, and, and in light of all that, because this is who Jesus is, how magnificent and beautiful and su- supreme he is, That as believers, then therefore, we must cling to Christ and savor Christ and persevere to the end by clinging on to Him. It's a book that will call you back again and again, back to Christ, to focus on Him and thereby follow Him all the way to the end, no matter what is there around you. Now, when you think of the audience that this book was written to, as the title itself suggests, the letter to the Hebrews, this was a letter that was written predominantly to Jewish Christians. And as we go through this letter, there's some hints that these Jewish Christians, they were told about Jesus, they were told the gospel of Jesus Christ by other Christians. So they didn't get this revelation while Jesus was on earth. Some time has passed now since Jesus came and ascended back to heaven. And some scholars think this was around somewhere in AD 60-something. So if you look at history during this time, this is when persecution was beginning to ramp up, particularly for the Christians. And the Roman regime, the Roman Empire, recognized certain religions that were exempt from any kind of persecution or oppression. And one of those religions was Judaism. So you can think about these you know, precious Christians, these young believers, Jewish Christians. There's the, there's the oppression that's coming, the persecution that is just beginning to ramp up. And then there's their old way of life. That religion of Judaism where everything seemed to be fine. And so naturally because of this pressure of persecution and looking back at Judaism and how good things were there, there was this pull towards going back to Judaism. 
Because, see, these Jewish Christians, when they thought about it, they, they were a minority. But then they're looking at Judaism. I mean, that's where their people are, their, their culture, their community, their, everything is there. Nobody wants to be alone, be the outsider, and be persecuted. You know, if I just simply go back to this Judaistic way of life and go back to my people, things will be so much more nicer, so much more comfortable. And this is what I'm used to. This is the tradition that I've grown up in. And so, some of these Jewish Christians, they were tempted to think, you know, what's wrong with more, go, going more and more to the synagogue and reduce attendance in the church gatherings. And then you hear the call from Hebrews 10, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. No, don't go back to your old ways. Don't, don't forget gathering together of the saints. Oh, what's wrong with uh, some of those Jewish festivals? Oh, nothing wrong in of itself. But then you hear the call from Hebrews again that, it, you know, get rid of everything that easily entangles you. Put aside those things, not just sinful things, but anything that entangles you from pursuing Christ, from following Christ. You know, now, for us, I don't think anyone sitting here, at least I don't, not that I know of, is going to be tempted to go back to Judaism. But we're certainly beginning to feel the, the pressure of living as a Christian in the culture that we live in. And while the, then the escape may not be to Judaism, it may be going back to our old way of life going the way of the world, where things will be so much more easier. I'll be accepted so much more. You know, and because living for Jesus sometimes can be difficult. Sometimes I don't feel like coming to the gathering of God's people, so I'll just do what I want to do. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. What you need, Christian, is to know Christ more and more and more. Because the more you know Him, the more you see His magnificence, the more you see how superior He is, it will help you to persevere on in life no matter what happens in your life. And so that's what the book of Hebrews is about. And really, in these first four verses in Hebrews, it serves as a summary of the entire book of Hebrews, so to speak. Where it talks about the, the Son of God in His unrivaled greatness. 
And so let's look at this, these four verses this morning as we uh, begin this book of Hebrews. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's final revelation in His Son. We're going to look at these first four verses under two headings. In verses 1 to the first part of verse 2, we'll look at the revelation of God. And in the second part of verse 2, all the way to verse 4, we'll look at the supremacy of God's final revelation. So firstly, the revelation of God, verse 1. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, meaning, this is talking about God, when God revealed himself to his people during the Old Testament time. You know, the first 39 books of the Bible, that, that time period, that's what this is talking about. It says God gave many revelations at many times and in many ways during this time frame. Or more literally, it would read, long ago God spoke in many parts and many ways. See, during the Old Testament times, God's revelation came in many parts, in different periods of history. So if you think of, for example, the book of Genesis that we just finished going through recently, there were aspects of who God is and His creation and His plan of redemption and what God's will is for man that we saw in the book of Genesis. There were various fragments or parts of truth that God had revealed about, his, about himself and his plan of redemption. And then as you go to the next book, there's more fragments about God's revelation that's given and it builds on what was previously given. And the sa same for the next book and the next book and the next book and the next book. Each Revelation from God was sufficient for that time period. So during the time of Genesis, during the time of the patriarchs, what God revealed about himself, that was more than sufficient for the people at that time. But here's the thing. While God spoke through people, through prophets... God who inspired men to then write down scripture. No one person had the full revelation of God. But at the same time, during this Old Testament era, there was a progressing of the revelation of God. A progressive revelation of more and more of God and His ways. There's that much knowledge of God, and as Revelation progresses, now it's added on to that, there's a little bit more knowledge of God, and more knowledge of His ways, and so there is a progression of knowledge of God and His ways. Bit by bit, each bit, building on what was revealed before. And it says that 
God revealed himself during this Old Testament time in many parts, but also in many ways. See, there are different dimensions to God's revelation. If you think of the kinds of revelation that are in the Old Testament, I mean, God speaks through narratives. He spoke through poetry and prophecy. He spoke through songs. He spoke through the law and proverbs and wisdom literature. If you think of the modes in which God revealed himself in the Old Testament, he spoke through visions and dreams and prophecies. He spoke through thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai. He spoke through storms, if you, if you think of how he appeared to Job and rebuked him. He spoke through a burning bush to Moses, a still small voice. He spoke through even events in history like the global flood and the exodus event and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. God was speaking through events in history. Then God spoke through institutions like the tabernacle and the temple and the numerous animal sacrifices that the people of God had to repeatedly make. God was speaking through that. He spoke through the marriage of Hosea to his adulterous wife to show his people how adulterous they had been to him. He spoke face to face with some people as well. So in this way, God revealed himself during Old Testament times to his people. And as colorful and as multifaceted the Old Testament revelation was through various prophets over a period of 1,500 years, that revelation was not complete. There were things about the Old Testament revelation that were still like a puzzle. You know, how, how do all these pieces actually fit together? I've got these pieces, but I don't know how it all fits together because that final piece was still missing. See, the problem with Old Testament revelation is that it was incomplete in its revelation. The final act of God's plan was not yet revealed. And so then the author of Hebrews says, but, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, in this New Testament era where the Messiah has come, He, God, has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the final revelation of God. There is no more new revelation to be given after this. God has spoken to us through His Son. God has revealed Himself finally and fully through His Son. And this full revelation of God in Jesus Christ is what is in the New Testament. You know, famous pastor and preacher Alistair Begg has famously said, 
Quote, in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he's explained. End quote. And I would add, in the book of Revelation, Jesus' return is anticipated. So here's a question I want to ask you. Okay, so does this mean, because really the, old, uh, the New Testament gives this full revelation of Jesus Christ, does that mean we don't value the Old Testament? Does this mean that the Old Testament is less important? No, not at all. In fact, what you see is there is actually a unity and a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament revelation. Why do I say that? Because the same God who spoke for century after century after century in the Old Testament is the same God who has now spoken in the last days fully and finally in His Son. The same God. It is one coherent revelation of God from Genesis to the last book of Revelation. Everything ultimately culminating in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I think there's something here that the author of Hebrews is telling his audience. That he has spoken to us in his Son. The privilege of being in these last days as God has revealed himself in his Son. You know, sometimes when we read through the Bible and biblical history, sometimes we think, oh, it would have been so great to be, uh, you know, in this time, perhaps, you know, when the, uh, at Mount Sinai, perhaps, or when the Exodus event happened, or, or when creation was happening, or whatever else. We would think, oh, those were such wondrous things that God would uh, has done, and it would have been so great if I was present during that time. But you know what every Old Testament saint would say? No, I want to be in this age, in these last days. Because there were so many things, as much as they got revelation after revelation after revelation, there were things that they didn't fully understand. Because the final piece was God's revelation in His Son. And every Old Testament saint would say, I would trade places with you and be here. And so he's telling the, the audience, the Hebrew Christians, don't go back to the old ways. Like as though God has not revealed himself in his son. You're going back to the shadows. Things where, where things were a little bit murky. It is so much more clearer in and through His Son, God's revelation. Count it a privilege. You know, I want us to just think through the grace of God in revealing Himself to mankind. Just think about it. God spoke in the beginning. And everything in this world came into existence, including man. 
And after that, as we saw in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve in the garden in intimate communion with God. And through this relationship, God is communicating with them. And they're growing and maturing in their understanding of truth and who God is. I mean, it would have been amazing, no matter how short that period was. Because remember, they had minds that were not tainted by sin. And so they were able to absorb everything that, is, that God is communicating to them, as God is revealing himself to them. But Adam and Eve chose to turn away from God's revelation and rebelled against God. And as a result, it was impossible for them to have an intimate relationship with God. Their whole nature had become tainted with sin and the effects of sin and death. And as a result, they were in spiritual darkness. Their mind could no longer just comprehend the glories of God. They were unable to see God rightly and therefore only wanting to run away from this good and great and glorious God. And here's the thing. And if God left mankind in that state, man would be in a lot of trouble. We would only reject God and suppress the truth about Him and run away from Him because of our sin and the spiritual dark, darkness, that kind of state that we're in. But here's the wonderful thing. God did not stay silent and leave man in that state. Because of His amazing grace, God moved toward man opening their spiritually blind eyes, revealing himself to them once again and promising to them that he would send the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent and reverse the curse. That fragment of the good news of Jesus Christ was given there in the garden even after man rebelled against God. And did get man get any better after that? Oh, man continued to rebel against God. And did God remain silent? No. Over centuries, God has only continued to reveal himself to mankind in different ways, in multicolored ways, through different circumstances. And yet all that was incomplete. Because that final piece was missing. And in these last days, God has revealed himself finally and fully in his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, as Christians, do we, do we understand the sheer grace shown to us that God has revealed himself to us in his son? I mean, if God didn't speak and reveal himself to us, we would never know him. It's an impossibility. We would never be just, you think of God himself if he never revealed himself. 
We could never discover God or make our way to God because God is so other than. A different category altogether. The holy, holy, holy God, unlike anything in this created order. So we're going to discover a being like that? No, he's in a different category and dimension altogether. And that's from God's side. But then from our side, because of our sin, we would only continue to reject God and rebel Him, and we would be on our way to eternal damnation. But the good news is that God has spoken. And for those of us who are believers, He has spoken to us fully through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this changes everything. We have eternal life in Him, and we have a living hope. We have purpose in our living. And we have every reason to be thankful to God as a result. Because He has spoken to us in His Son. Friend, if you're not a Christian today, I want to tell you this. That the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His Son, Jesus Christ. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you want to know more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, you can come and speak to me at the end of this service. I'll be standing right there at the door. Or perhaps speak to a friend of yours, somewhere here today that you know is a Christian, and they will tell you who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus. So God has spoken. In Old Testament times, he spoke through various prophets, plural. But now, in these last days, he has spoken through his Son, singular, through one person. This singular Son has fully revealed God in a way that the Old Testament prophets combined together could never ever reveal. This Son is of a totally different category than the prophets of old. So now you say, well, what makes this son so special that he can reveal God fully unlike anyone else? And that brings us to our second point, the supremacy of God's final revelation the supremacy of God's final revelation that's in His Son. So the second part of verse 2, where it says, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things. God has appointed His Son to be the heir of all things. See, all things belong to God the Father, right? Everything in this created world. And God the Father has appointed that His Son, Jesus Christ, will inherit that all that belongs to God. In fact, Psalm 2 talks about a time when the Son will one day inherit the earth and all it contains. Psalm 2 verse 8 says, Ask of me, this is God the Father speaking, And I will make the nations your heritage, telling God the Son, Jesus Christ. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But you might be thinking, but hang on a second. If Jesus is God, doesn't everything belong to Jesus anyway? Well, this is specifically as the incarnate son. As God-man. As God came down and took on flesh. Jesus Christ, as God-man, will have the world and all it contains as his inheritance one day. I like what John Piper says about this quote. Much of creation is in rebellion against him. And God has ordained that because of the Son's faithful obedience and death and resurrection, these enemies will one day be subdued, and all creation will bow down and acknowledge that they are ruled and owned by Jesus Christ. Close quote. So as the incarnate Son, the divine Son who took on flesh, Jesus will one day receive the earth and the nations as his reward for his redemptive work. In the end, when Jesus returns as God-man, he will take visible ownership of the world and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That will happen one day. And in the end, it will be all about Jesus. Or in other words, Jesus will be the end of all things. But this son, he's not just the end of all things. He's also the beginning of all things. Notice the next phrase. Through whom... Also, he created the world. The Son is also the agent through whom God created the world. So if the Son created the world and everything in it, you can say that there was nothing that existed before the Son created it. In other words, the Son is the very beginning of all things. There's nothing before him. He created the world. You know, interestingly, the word that's translated for world, it's actually the word, word for ages. That he created the ages. Meaning that the Son not only created the created order in the beginning, but he's also the one who's created the ages of time and history and everything that exists within them. In other words, the sun is the beginning of the universe and of all history and ages. So here's what the author is trying to say. The sun is the end of all things and he's the beginning of all things. Well, is there anything else that he says? Yeah, he also says that he's the sustainer of all things. Or you could say that the Son is in the middle of all things. Just look at verse 3 now. The, the middle of verse 3. Where he says, And he upholds the universe by the, power of, by the word of his power. 
You know that children's song that we all know? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. And that's what this is talking about. That he's holding our molecules together to prevent our bodies from falling apart. He's holding the molecules of every living creature in this world. And every immaterial object that you can think of in this world, he's holding it all together. That he's holding the planets and the stars in its position. That he's turning the earth on its axis. And the sun is fixed in its position and he's holding it there so that there are seasons and life on earth. You know, there is not one corner of the universe that is untouched by Jesus. That's what it means. If Jesus for a moment would just cease to hold the world, things would cease to be. And everything would be chaos. Just for a moment. From the smallest to the greatest in all of God's creation, the Son is sustaining them all or upholding them all. In fact, the word that's translated uphold, it has the idea of not just holding something, but also carrying it forward to its appointed goal. Upholding it and carrying it toward its appointed goal. So he's holding everything in creation and moving it towards its appointed goal. What's the ultimate end of everything? We just saw that. Jesus. In fact, even for us as believers, this is a great comfort, is it not? That Jesus is not just holding our physical lives, but he's, he's sustaining us and, and carrying us through to our appointed goal of becoming like him and being with him forever. Jesus is doing that by sustaining all of us believers and moving us to our appointed goal. So Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. From Him, and to Him, and through Him. Isn't that what Romans 11 says? To the praise of His glory. Jesus is the greatest reality in this universe. And it is all about Him. It always has been. It continues to be and will be as well. And so, to make our lives all about Him would be our highest good, right? Because this is the greatest reality. Otherwise, to do anything else... To move away from Jesus is to move away from this ultimate reality of what this whole world is all about. And when you go against God's order and God's design, what happens? It is to our ruin. So let's make our lives all about Him. The author of Hebrews tells his original audience and us today. Now the author tells us the nature of the Son. Verse 3. It 
says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance. It's what shines out from a source of light. Meaning that Jesus radiates the glory of God. Jesus unveils all that is God to those around. Think of the sun and its radiance. The, the light rays that come out of the sun. You can't really separate the two, can you? But there is a distinction. And yet you would say, we see the sun by seeing the rays of the sun. Because if there's no radiance of the sun, you can't see the sun. Here's how one commentator put it, quote, The sun reveals the fullness of God's essence and attributes, because this one has an unbroken connection with the Father. He is the outraying or the outshining of God's glory, end quote. And the sun is also the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning the sun has the same nature as God. Everything that is true about God the Father is true about God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. That's why Jesus says in John 14 verse 9 that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So here's what all this means. The reason why Jesus is the most, the the fullest and most complete revelation of God is because he shares the same essence, the same nature of God. In other words, Jesus is himself God. And yet, there's distinction between God the Father and God the Son, even though They are two persons, but the same one God. And this is what makes Jesus' revelation and everything else about Jesus unique, unlike anyone else that has come before, giving full revelation of God. And lastly, it says of the Son, the last part of verse 3 and then verse 4, After making purification for sins, he, that is the Son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name as he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Son made purification of our sins in a way that no one else could or anything else could. And the word here for purification, it's not just the idea of removal of sin, but a a cleansing and making pure. What this is talking about is Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, where Jesus took the penalty for our sins. And now we have been forgiven of our sins. And not just that, we have been made clean through and through before God's sight because of what Jesus did on the cross. He took away every stain of of sin. 
Everything that was required, every barrier that was there between a holy God and our sin has been removed. And Jesus overcame this by offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. What the author is reminding believers is, as believers, we have been purified of all our sin. Past, present, and future because of what Jesus has done. Nothing more needs to be done. That work is complete. So when these Jewish Christians are tempted to go back to that sacrificial system, they're reminded, no, you don't need to go back to that. You know, as you're facing the pressures of persecution and the lure of an easy life, the author is saying, and perhaps you see sin in your own life, no, going back to those things is not going to alleviate the guilt of your sin. Jesus has done it all. And that's what he tells us even today. That when you feel the guilt of your sin, you don't have to observe some kind of penance. You don't have to beat yourself up for days on end. Yes, you have to confess your sin and turn away from it. But what he's saying is look to Christ. He has done the perfect work and that work is complete. And so because his work is complete, Jesus is able to sit down. Because that, that work of redemption on that cross has been completed. Jesus now sits down at the right hand of the Father as he's ascended back into heaven. It's a place of honor and privilege. And it's a way of declaring now Jesus, the God-man, as king over all. The true and finished victor. And he sits down there now even interceding for us, his people. But then even as the author of Hebrews says, he is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He adds this in verse 4 having become as much more superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now why bring up the angels? You know, what's so, what's so special about angels? Well, when you think about it, angels too were messengers from God. And they brought, in, in Eri's past, the revelation of God to God's people. So that's one reason. But then beyond that, as, as the author might be talking about, oh, it's all these prophets, oh, they were fallen men. But what about these angels? As you look up into the heavens, there's these heavenly messengers. What about them? And what the author is saying is, no, no, no. This Jesus that walked on earth and has now ascended, He's actually now become even greater than the angels. Now you say, how does he become greater than the angels? I mean, isn't Jesus always greater 
than the angels? Again, this is talking about the God-man. Yes, as son of God, as eternal son of God, he's always greater than the angels. But as the eternal son of God took on humanity and came into the world, as we will see later uh, in Hebrews, and it's quoted from the psalm as well, he became a little bit lower than the angels as he took on frail flesh. Because now he's God-man. But even as God-man, because of his redemptive work on the cross, and now as he has ascended into heaven, there is a man sitting there at the right hand. Now even as a man, he is now greater than the angels. And so the author is saying, fix your eyes on Christ. Focus yourself on him and don't be distracted away from him. Brother, sister, I don't know what you're going through this morning or what season that you're going through. Perhaps you're going through some problems in your married life. Perhaps you're going through some problems in your parenting and you're just thinking oh this this Jesus thing and following his ways it's just so hard I'm constantly being sinned against I'm just gonna it's just so much more easier not to follow Jesus and be like Jesus and follow his ways or perhaps it's in your workplace and things are hard perhaps people are treating you bad and you just think oh all this Living like Jesus and following Jesus. No, I just want to be like the world and give them back for what they've done in kind. Or perhaps in school, you're trying your best, but you're not particularly doing that well in school. And you're thinking, oh, what's... You know, it'll be just so much more easier. Maybe I just don't have that brain capacity. It'll be so much easier just to cheat and and do something like that, be like everyone else, so much more easier than following Jesus and living according to his ways. The author of Hebrews is telling you and me, no, don't do that. Jesus is all you need. And what you really need is a grander and a magnificent vision of who Jesus is. As a Christian, and that will cause you to persevere in this life. I want to close with this quote from one theologian. I think it suits to be a conclusion to this sermon. He says, quote, When it comes down to the nitty-gritty of life and all our daily challenges, there's only one thing that will sustain you in suffering and empower you to face temptation and fill you with a sort of joy and peace that satisfy the soul. There is only one thing that will equip you to make the hard choices and will captivate and fascinate your mind and supply you with a never-ending abundance of resources to meet your every need. And that one thing is the beauty and the glory and the majesty 
and the superiority and the all-satisfying splendor of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. End quote. And so let's continue to make it our mission to know Jesus Christ and make much of him and to continue to cling on to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in a most excellent way through your Son. Forgive us for our apathies. Forgive us for the times when we are distracted. Forgive us for the times when we are tempted to go the way of the world and abandon Christ and following him. Would you, Lord, as you, as you begin to teach us from the book of Hebrews, grant us a, a bigger view of Jesus Christ. And as we know him more and plumb the depths of who Jesus is, cause us to persevere to the end, making much of him. This we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.